Section 38 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 4. Brazil. Chapter 15. Reign of Pedro I. Independence was the result of a plan carefully arranged by José Bonifacio and his Brazilian associates. Pedro had declared himself emperor in an access of dramatic enthusiasm. He wanted the glory of founding a great empire, and he loved to think of his name as that of the first legitimate monarch who was really self-abnegating enough to establish a constitutional government of his own free will. The role of a Washington, with the added glory of unselfishly resigning absolute power, appealed to his boyish vanity. But the cold fit came on when he undertook to perform his promises. His loud protestations of constitutionalism turned out to be mere windy mouthings. Though his reign largely assisted in maintaining Brazil's territorial unity, it cut off the promise of local self-government and helped bring on twenty years of bloody revolts. He was not exactly a hypocrite. He loved to hear sonorous periods about liberty rolling out of his mouth, but he had no idea of what they really meant. José Bonifacio and his brothers remained at the head of affairs when independence was declared, but, ardent and successful as the older Andrada had been in that moment, he proved no statesman, and had not the strength to oppose his willful young master. Almost immediately the Andradas engaged in bitter quarrels with the other leaders of the independence party, and summarily banished the five ablest advocates of a liberal constitution. They used their power to revenge themselves on their personal enemies, their secret police was worse than anything John had maintained, and they forcibly suppressed the newspapers which dared criticize their acts. Pedro's authority was accepted slowly outside of Rio. The ties binding the northern provinces to him were especially feeble. A constituent assembly had been summoned, but great difficulty was experienced in securing a full representation. Pernambuco and the neighboring provinces hesitated long before consenting to have anything to do with it, and Pará, Maranhão, and Piauí were never represented. It finally met in May 1823 with only 50 out of the 100 members in their seats. The emperor opened the session with an arrogant and dictatorial speech. Quote, I promise to adopt and defend the constitution which you may frame if it should be worthy of Brazil and myself. We need a constitution that will be an insurmountable barrier against any invasion of the imperial prerogatives. Such language excited an unexpected protest even among the members of this humble and inexperienced assembly. Though a majority were magistrates, they were not without a sense of the dignity of their functions as legislators and were eager for liberty, a liberty interpreted according to their own undigested theories. The Andradas bitterly attacked those who dared protest against the emperor's language, and a majority was only obtained for the government program by the lavish distribution of decorations. Pedro soon tired of the Andradas and their fiercely anti-Portuguese policy, and summarily dismissed them. The disgraced ministers passed at once into the most virulent opposition, and they inflamed popular prejudice against the resident Portuguese, and aroused fears that the emperor was plotting a reunion of Brazil with Portugal. As the session went on, 
the assembly showed a more independent spirit, and Pedro became more and more irritated. The Brazilian newspapers insulted his Portuguese officers, and the assembly took the part of the former. In November matters reached a crisis. Pedro drew up his troops in front of the assembly's meeting-house, and demanded immediate satisfaction to the insulted officers and the expulsion of the Andradas. The answer was a brave refusal, but against his cannon nothing availed. He sent up an order for an instant and unconditional dissolution, and arresting the Andradas and other liberals as they came out of the building, deported them on board ship without the formality of charge or trial. Pedro ordered a paper constitution to be drawn up by his ministers. In form it was liberal, but he had no serious intention of putting it in force. Even in Rio, the people ignored the invitation to give their formal adhesion to this delusive document. A show of acceptance was sought to be obtained from the provinces by going through the form of submitting it to the municipal councils. These councils were then close corporations, largely self-elective and dominated by the bureaucratic caste, but even so, north of Bahia, they paid no attention to the emperor's communication, and in the south some members had to be imprisoned before their consent could be extorted the emperor swore to the constitution and it was gravely promulgated as the nation's fundamental law but no congress was summoned as a matter of fact the government continued a pure despotism wherever the emperor's power extended the press which had sprung into existence during the agitation for independence and which after having been throttled by the andradas had partly revived during the session of the constituent assembly was now definitely suppressed taxes were levied on the sole authority of the monarch laws were put into force without other sanction than his will citizens were arbitrarily banished and military tribunals condemned civilians to death in time of peace we can never know the extent of the shock felt by the liberals on hearing of the forcible dissolution of the constituent assembly in pernambuco it was one of the stimulating causes of a rebellion in that city the press had not been suppressed and the spirit of eighteen seventeen was still alive a strong separatist feeling existed and when the junta resigned the popular choice made carvalho paez who had been engaged in the former rebellion governor the emperor set up his own man but authorities and people refused to recognize him an open breach followed, and Pedro, with his usual vigor, undertook to establish his dominion over the hitherto aloof north. In July 1824, the Pernambucanos threw down the gauntlet by proclaiming the quote, Confederation of the Equator. End quote. This was intended to be a federal republic after the model of the union between the provinces of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador. The adhesion of Pernambuco, Paraiba, Rio Grande do Norte, and Ceará could be counted upon, and that of Maranhão, Pará, and Bahia was hoped for. Bahia, however, remained apathetic, and that city furnished Pedro a convenient base for his operations. He sent Admiral Cochrane to blockade and bombard Pernambuco, while an army marched up the coast. Factional civil war had broken out in the interior of the revolted provinces, and the imperial forces were joined by Carvalho's local enemies. The patriots fought desperately, but were overwhelmed before they could provide themselves with arms or organize their resistance. 
the city had to surrender on the 17th of September, though fighting was kept up for a long time in the interior. Cochrane sailed north, reducing the ports one by one, and by the end of the year the serious resistance was at an end. The victorious emperor punished the patriots with ruthless severity, sending many of the leaders to the scaffold and establishing military tribunals, which inaugurated a reign of terror. An Englishman named Ratcliffe was brought to Rio and hanged, not so much for his part in the insurrection as because he had once offended Pedro's mother in Portugal. Quote, she offered a reward for his head, end quote, said the emperor as he signed the death warrant, quote, but now she shall have it for nothing, end quote. In the spring of 1825, it seemed as if Pedro was certain to establish himself at the head of a military despotism, extending from the Amazon to the plate. Before the Pernambuco insurrection, his revenue and recruits had been drawn solely from Rio and the adjacent provinces. Now his fleet and disciplined army, recruited by impressment and concentrated under his eye, enabled him to get revenue from all the ports and to hold the provinces in check. His sea power and his possession of the purse strings gave him a tremendous advantage. He imported Germans, Swiss and Irish with a view to forming a corps of Janissaries. All Brazil seemed submissive and the enthusiasm which had flamed out among the Brazilians in 1821 and 1822 had died out, leaving as its only permanent effect a strong sentiment against reunion with Portugal. Externally, his position seemed secure. He was assured of Canning's active support in securing formal recognition as an independent monarch. Portugal was helpless though his application for a defensive and offensive alliance had been refused by henry clay the united states was the first to recognize brazil's independence even the holy alliance had little objection to an independent american state ruled by a legitimate monarch in the summer of eighteen twenty five a treaty of peace was framed between portugal and brazil through the intermediation of england Independence was formally recognized, but Pedro made the error of consenting that his father should take the honorary title of Emperor of Brazil, and by a secret article he pledged Brazil to assume ten millions of the Portuguese debt, though it had been incurred in war against herself. In March 1825 a rebellion against Pedro broke out in Uruguay, and the Argentine gauchos swarmed over the border. The Brazilians easily held the fortified city of Montevideo, but the Spanish-Americans were successful in the open field, and after six months of harassing, fighting caught the imperial army in a disadvantageous position and cut it to pieces in the decisive battle of Sarandí. The Buenos Aires government at once gave notice that it must recognize that Uruguay had reunited itself to the Argentine, and Pedro responded with a declaration of war and a blockade. The preparations for war involved him in unprecedented expenditures, which piled up the debt already accumulated in his father's time, and added to, by the War of Independence and the suppression of the Confederation of the Equator. He decided to call together the representatives of the people, and insist that they bear a share of the responsibility. So little interest was taken that it was hard to hold the elections, and the members had to be urged to present themselves. On the 3rd of May, 1826, 
the first Brazilian Congress met. Intended as a mere instrument to furnish supplies for the war, and meeting with the fear of the fate of the Constituent Assembly before its eyes, it hesitatingly began the work of parliamentary government. Except for the revolution of 1889, the sessions have never since been interrupted. A week before the assembling of Congress, the news reached Brazil that King John was dead. Pedro was the eldest son, but his brother Miguel was a candidate for the vacant throne. Pedro had to make an immediate choice between the two crowns. He decided to keep that of Brazil and to transfer that of Portugal to his daughter, Maria Gloria, then a child seven years old. He tried to head off Miguel by making the latter regent and promising that Maria should marry him as soon as she was old enough, while he tied his brother's hands by promulgating a constitution for Portugal. The scheme failed to preserve the peace, and the Portuguese absolutists, supporting Miguel, and the constitutionalists, Maria Gloria, almost immediately became involved in a civil war. During the latter part of Pedro's reign, he was continually preoccupied with Portuguese affairs and trying to promote his daughter's fortunes in Europe. The war on the plate turned out difficult and disastrous. Notwithstanding that great land forces were sent, no progress was made toward reducing Uruguay to obedience, and the overwhelming naval force blockading Buenos Aires was harassed by a small fleet improvised by an able Irishman, Admiral Brown, in the Argentine service. Fast-sailing Baltimore clippers, fitted out as privateers, infested the whole Brazilian coast, often venturing in sight of Rio, and soon sweeping the coasting trade out of existence. Fruitless attempts to enforce the blockade involved Pedro in difficulties with neutral powers. Brazilian merchants were disgusted with the war, and communication between the provinces became nearly impossible. The Brazilian land forces in Uruguay were increased to 20,000, but the Argentines, under General Carlos Alvear, audaciously averted the danger of an invasion of their territory by planning and effecting an inroad into Rio Grande itself. The Brazilian general allowed Alvear to slip between his main body and Montevideo, and the latter penetrated to the east, sacked the important town of Bajé, and was off to the north with the whole Brazilian army in hot pursuit. On the 20th of February 1827, the Argentines turned and attacked the Brazilians at a disadvantage, defeating them with great loss. In this battle of Ituzaingo, 16,000 men took part, and the armies were nearly equal in numbers. The Brazilians escaped without serious pursuit, while the Argentines retired at their leisure, assured that no aggressive operations would soon be undertaken against them. Pedro's hope of dominance on the south shore of the plate was ended. Naval disasters suffered at the hands of the indefatigable Brown made him still more anxious for peace. Negotiations were begun with the Argentine government, which was only prevented by lack of money and internal factional quarrels from undertaking an aggressive war against Brazilian territory. Operations were kept up languidly on both sides for a year, and finally Pedro in 1825 consented to a preliminary treaty by which he relinquished his sovereignty over Uruguay, obtaining in return Argentine consent that it be erected into an independent country. 
The first session of the Brazilian Congress had been very timid and voted as the Emperor desired. The session of 1827 was not so respectful. The news of Ituzaingo had made him seem less formidable. For the first time the chamber became a forum for the discussion of governmental theories, and the voice of Vasconcelos, the great champion of parliamentary government, was heard. In the fall of 1827, independent newspapers began to make their appearance, and Pedro dared not interfere with them. The tone of most of them was exaggerated, but in December the Aurora Fluminense, with Evaristo da Vega as editor, issued its first number. By universal consent he is recognized as the most influential journalist who ever wielded a pen in Brazil. His profound and temperate discussion of public affairs gave him an ascendancy over opinion which can hardly be understood in countries where party conventions and set speeches give opportunities for authoritatively outlining policies. When Congress met in May 1828, the Emperor and his government had completely lost prestige. The public's and chamber's consciousness of their rights and their power had made a distinct advance. Vasconcelos infused into the debates an independent and statesmanlike spirit, not unworthy the great popular assemblies of the most advanced countries. The youth of this remarkable man had been passed in pleasure-seeking, but his election to Congress gave him an object in life commensurate with his great abilities, and he applied himself with unquenchable ardor to the study of political science. Corrupt in morals, inordinate in ambition, his veniality notorious, his constitution ruined by disease, his skin withered, his hair grey, and his appearance that of man of sixty, though he was but thirty, the spirit within rose superior to all physical and moral defects. His role was peculiarly that of champion of the prerogatives of Congress. By his side was Pedro Feijo, afterwards regent, incorruptible in morals and unyielding in will, the champion of federation and democracy, and the earliest Brazilian positivist. This chamber of 1828 made a real beginning toward making ministers responsible to Congress, and started legal and administrative reforms. But the emperor insisted that its sole attention be given to increasing taxes, when the chamber definitely refused in 1829, he dissolved it in the hope that the next might prove more tractable. This act destroyed the last remnants of Pedro's popularity. From that moment his abdication or expulsion was inevitable. His friends tried to create a reaction by organizing societies in favor of absolutism, and governors of retrograde principles were appointed. But the popular irritation against him, because he was a Portuguese by birth and sympathy, constantly grew. Brazil divided into two parts. All the Brazilians belonged to one, and only the resident Portuguese to the other. The new chamber was harder to manage than the old one. The Andradas had returned from exile, and most of the new members were bitterly prejudiced against Pedro. In the midst of the discontent came the news of the July Revolution in Paris, giving the liberal propaganda a tremendous impetus. The assassination of a newspaper man named Badaro in November 1830 aroused popular indignation to a fearful pitch. Pedro made a last effort to regain his popularity by making a journey through the province of Minas. 
His cold reception convinced him that the disaffection was not merely local, and he returned to Rio sick at heart. In March 1831 disturbances broke out in the Rio streets between the radicals and the Portuguese. Vasconcelos and Feijo were absent, but Evaristo drew up a manifesto demanding immediate reparation for the outrage committed by the rioting Portuguese. The emperor tried to still the rising storm by dismissing his ministry, but the rioting continued, and he suddenly again changed front and appointed a ministry of known reactionary principles. The announcement was followed on the 7th of April by the assembling of a mob, among whose members were professional men, public employees, and even soldiers and deputies. Pedro's proclamation was torn from the messenger's hands and trampled underfoot beneath the windows of his palace. The troops were all on the popular side. A committee crowded its way into the emperor's presence, but he would yield nothing to compulsion, saying with dignity, quote, I will do everything for the people, but nothing by the people, end quote. The news of the desertion of the very troops guarding his person he received with equanimity, but the populace showed equal stubbornness. Throughout the night the crowd stuck to their posts, and about two o'clock in the morning he suddenly drew up to a table, and, without consulting anyone, wrote out an unconditional abdication in favour of his infant son. The ministers of France and Great Britain had remained with him during this night of anxiety, and when the morning came they were reluctant to accept his abdication as final. All the foreign diplomats, except the representatives of the United States and Colombia, followed him on board the British warship, where he took refuge. They wished to give him their moral support in case a counter-revolution were attempted. The most potent cause for Pedro's loss of popularity was that he was a Portuguese. He offended the self-love of a jealous people in a hundred ways by favouring his Portuguese friends. Almost as fatal was his treatment of his blameless wife. One mistress after another succeeded to his favours, and he acknowledged and emboldened his illegitimate children. Most of his concubines did not hold him long, but the last, who was said to be of English descent, acquired a complete ascendancy over him. He publicly installed her as his mistress, created her a marchioness, forced the empress to accept her as a lady-in-waiting, and submit to ride in the same carriage with her. The court attended in a body the baptism of her child, and some of his love-letters to her are indescribable. They could have been written only by a degenerate. In the fall of 1826, the poor empress was enceinte with her seventh son in nine years, and while in this condition, Pedro brutally abused her. She never recovered and died in the most fearful agony. Pedro was absent, looking after the war in the plate, but the marchioness had the heartless effrontery to demand admittance to the sick room, and Pedro, on his return, dismissed the ministers who had dared to approve the action of the official who refused to let his mistress gloat over the tortured deathbed of his wife. Pedro was too boyish, talkative, and familiar to maintain an ascendancy over such a people as the Brazilians. At all hours of the day and night he was to be seen driving furiously about the streets, and he constantly showed himself in the theatres. 
He liked to drill his troops himself, and frequently beat the soldiers with his own imperial hand. Once he nearly maimed himself, striking at a stupid recruit with his sword, and missing the blow, catching his own foot. On another occasion he almost killed himself and two members of his family by overturning his carriage. He was always ready to explain to any mob at hand his reasons for his official policy, and was too fond of excitement and applause to refrain from making a speech whenever he had a chance. The inmost emotions of his heart were too cheaply exhibited on the Rio streets for the populace to have much respect for them. He was a belated knight-errant with a decided touch of the demagogue. End of section 38